Well, if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, This is the second week in our three-week series called Face Turn to the Cross, where we're kind of lingering in uh, the last week of Jesus' life on earth before he would be crucified. Uh, In the fall of 2007, in late October, there was a family from the uh, from the um, Midwest, I guess you would say, uh, the Smith family, and they decided they were going to take a family vacation to West Virginia. They were kind of city folks, and so they wanted to take their family on this hiking trip into the Appalachians of of West Virginia. They had the Smith family had three kids; all three were teenagers. Uh, the oldest, Jacob, uh, had autism. And he was 17, and they got everybody together. They did all their planning, and they, they were well prepared for this trip. And the goal was to, to hike, deep, hike deep into the Appalachian Mountains um, and then you know, stop at a predetermined location, plan, uh, camp, and then get up the next day and kind of venture more deeply in. Well, the first day, they, they made it pretty far into the, the dense terrain, and they, they paused for a break to just rest for a minute, and they looked back. And they saw that Jacob was not with him. And uh, as if, you've, if you're a parent, you've ever had a child disappear for even a moment, you know just how uh, terrifying this is. And so, uh, so they started, of course, to call his name. Jacob, where are you? They started looking for him, looking down the trail, looking all around, surveying the surroundings, and they couldn't find him. They searched frantically, naturally, until it started to get dark and even somewhat into the darkness before they made their way back down the trail into the town at the, the trailhead, just a little town. Uh, they told the police, and the police got uh, formed a search team. The search team began very early the next morning, making their way, crawling and climbing and hiking and just going into all this dense area, trying to find this 17-year-old boy who had disappeared. They hiked all day. They searched all day. Nothing. It got dark. They returned to safety. The very next day, they did it again. Nothing. A third day, they got up. The search team, they're walking. They're 10 feet apart. They're an arm's length apart. They can find nothing. They cannot find this kid. And so finally, after three days, I got the whole town involved, everybody in the town, including uh, the local pastor of the small church there. His name was Pastor Blevins. And uh, he, along with everyone else, hundreds of volunteers, went into the wilderness to find this boy. Now, Pastor Blevins said he was very inclined, in fact, eager to help for a, a couple of reasons at least. One, because he knew the, the area probably as well as anybody, having lived there his whole life. And the other reason is because he also had three teenage kids. And he said, if one of my kids went missing, I, I'd want everybody who was available, everybody possible to help. And so he went out. At one point, he said he felt like maybe his little church even resented him because he had been gone more than a day, uh, totally unavailable, out of the office. But he said uh, he knew that it would be a time that he would, he would need to invest. And so he went. And finally, this is day five, and they, they're at a point where they, you know, they believe that all hope is lost. How would this kid survive? No warm clothing, no food, no provisions, of course, no directions. And Pastor Blevins said there was a woman who was next to him in the search, um, she was an arm's length away, and she heard something. It sounded kind of like a whimper, maybe a cry. So she leaned over, she rushed to the spot, moved the debris out of the way, and there was Jacob, the 17-year-old. He was uh, stunned, trembling, you might say in shock. He was freezing. Um, and so they, they picked him up, and they warmed him, they, they held him, they brought him uh, to safety. And um, Now, Pastor Blevins said that the thing that he will never, ever forget 
It left an indelible print in his mind. He said, when Jacob was reunited with his mom and dad, he said it was a scene unlike anything he'd encountered. He said the, the incredible joy, the happiness, the relief, he said the embrace, he said, I'll never, ever forget that. It was one of the most meaningful times in my life, just to see that lost child reunited with his father and mother. And he said it was only later that something unexpected happened. He also, this, this event, having experienced it, also intensified his desire, his interest in doing evangelism. Because he, the more that he thought about it, the more that he realized that this is the same way it is with our Heavenly Father. When one of his wayward and lost children return home, the joy, the, the, the happiness, the, the celebration... This is a beautiful picture of what our Father, Heavenly Father, does. He delights. He throws a party. There's more rejoicing in heaven, according to Jesus, when one sinner repents than 99 of those who believe they're righteous uh, continue to live as they were. Well, finally, Pastor Blevins reflected on it. He, He wrote this down. He said, should mere doubt, embarrassment, or the fear of rejection keep me from searching the sea of people for the ones about to die. Some only have minutes left. At some point, it will be too late to search for them. The rescue mission must begin. So last week, I kind of set up this sermon series for you, and um, I explained how we're going to go about these weeks. We're going to, for each Sunday, we're going to focus on one event, on, on one day of the last week of Jesus' life. So last week, we looked at what happened, something that happened on Monday of that week, uh, uh, namely the cursing of the fig tree. And then today, I want to look at something that happened on Tuesday of that week. And the next week, we'll look at something that happened on Thursday. Say, why not Wednesday? We don't really have anything recorded. We don't know what happened on Wednesday. It's called the silent day. And then on Friday, Good Friday, we'll look at what happened naturally on, on that Friday. And then We'll, we'll end the, that with Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, when we look at the resurrection. And, and my goal, hopefully what this will do is it, it'll give us a better understanding of the significance of the cross and what it says about God's power, God's love, His mercy, His compassion, and the, the breadth of His salvation. So today we're going to consider a story that Jesus told on, on Tuesday, the last of the last week of his life on earth before he would be crucified. And, and I think a couple things we're going to see. We're going to see a different side of God than, than maybe we often think of. And we're going to see what it takes to be welcomed in his presence. So a different side of God, we might say, and what it takes to be welcomed in his presence. I'm going to read the whole story, uh, Matthew 22, verses 1 through 4. Here reads the word of the Lord. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. 
Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So again, it's the last day of Jesus' life. It's Tuesday, and Jesus has this on his mind, of course, that he would soon be killed. And the text tells us, verse 1, that again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. In other words, this is something Jesus has done before. This is something that Jesus has done a lot of. This is something Jesus continues to do. This was his preferred method of teaching, frankly, telling stories or what we know as parables. They were, Jesus would rope people in with these stories about common things like seeds and weeds and gardens and kings and princes and weddings and kingdoms and treasures and all these things. In fact, earlier in Matthew's gospel, we're told that Jesus said nothing to them without a parable. So there's something about a story that, that captures our interest. There's something about a story that captivates us. Janine and I were at a wedding not too long ago, and one of the guys at the, the round table in the reception, he said to me, why don't you tell more stories about when you were in television and when you covered sports and so on? And I said, I, I feel like I've told those so many times. He said, you should tell more of them. And the thing is, when you tell stories, they, they, they were roped in. Stories grab us and they don't let us go. We're actually wired to be, created to be storytellers. This explains why God in His infinite wisdom reveals Himself to creation, to His creatures, by way, predominantly by way of narrative. Two-thirds of the Bible comes to us in the form of story. Well, when Jesus tells these stories, the parables, it's not to make a moral point as if to say, do this and don't do that, like an Aesop's fable or a Sesame Street skit. But, but what he's doing is he's, he's turning upside down the theological, the moral, the religious world of his hearers. So he told these stories to confront his hearers and really to, to confound them, to frustrate them, to confuse them, to mystify them. This is why when he's done telling one of these stories, the hearers are often frustrated. I've said uh, often that, you know, as, courage, as encouraging as it is to hear, you know, amen when I preach, um, which, you know, this is not really the, <laughs> the necessary culture for that. Don't hear a lot of that. But it is encouraging, to, you know, to get feedback and so on. But I've also said it's, it's sometimes actually better to have complete silence if that means that people are being confronted with something they hadn't really considered before. You know, sometimes when people say amen, they're, they're just saying, I agree with you, I've heard that before. But it's sometimes good to have silence because that may mean that someone's being confronted in a way they haven't before. Well, to hear the Lord's parables rightly is to be stunned, actually. And you may have thought as I was reading some of this, that's really strange, or why would the king respond that way? We're going to get into that. But here in verse 2, Jesus says, The kingdom of God may be compared to, and then he tells a story about a king who throws a wedding feast 
for his son. With the parables, there's, there's typically one point, not three. So I could, you know, I could give you three points, but that's probably more than Jesus had, and so I'm just going to stick with the one point. But what we are going to do is we're going to, I'm going to give you one point, and I'm going to explain it in three different parts. So we'll break it down in three sections. So here's the point of this parable. The joyful living God has issued an invitation into the celebration of his son. But only the down and out will accept the invitation, while the honorable, the quote honorable, reject it at devastating cost. I believe that's the point. So let's break it down into the three, three sections. So let's look at the first section. The joyful living God has issued an invitation into the celebration of his son. Jesus says in verse 2 that the king gave a wedding feast for his son. This king is a celebrative king. This king likes a good party, we could say. Over the years, I've officiated, I had initially written down hundreds, I think that's an exaggeration, but definitely dozens, dozens of weddings over the years. I've done weddings in churches, uh, barns, vineyards, beaches, rooftops, just about any setting you can imagine. I actually have one coming up in May that I'm officiating in San Diego, which is a pretty good place. Uh, to do a wedding. And these weddings, of course, are beautiful and they're momentous and they're these great celebrations filled with love and laughter and intimacy and optimism and great expectations. But as great as they are, they don't really compare to the weddings we see in the scriptures, particularly the weddings of Jesus' day. The weddings of ancient Israel were were often week-long celebrations filled with Feasting and, and drinking and dancing, and, and one day just kind of bled into the next. Think about the wedding, at, the weddings we see in Scripture, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus uh, performed his, his, mer- his first miracle, turning water into wine, or grape juice if you're a Baptist. Um, but you see these weddings, and you see the great weddings in the Old Testament even, the, the wedding that's described in Psalm 45, this beautiful, incredible ordeal. Well, the king here in this story, in this incredible feast, is a reference to the living God of the Bible who is throwing this incredible feast for his son. He's happy. He is joyful. Sometimes I think we have this image of God as this frustrated angry taskmaster who is an up, up in heaven with a lightning bolt in one hand, sort of ready to strike down anyone who messes up. And to be candid, it is possible to read the Old Testament, read the Old Testament, and, and if we don't understand it in light of the big picture, to come away with this idea of God as this mercurial, spiteful, sort of uh, a God who just flies off the handle and, and a God who's endlessly demanding and ruthlessly punishes people even for the slightest slip-ups. A God who calls for the elimination of entire nations. Sometimes it seems like God is just in an infinitely bad mood when we read the Scriptures. But the God of the Bible actually lives, exists in a perpetual state, an infinite state of joy, of happiness. A joy that cannot be shaken or stolen by his creatures. As one theologian writes, undoubtedly, God is the most joyous being in the universe. The abundance of his love and generosity is inseparable from his infinite joy. All of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, 
God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and richness. You say, yeah, but what about Romans 1 that says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness? And I would say, yeah, wrath is an attribute, is a characteristic of God. His righteous anger, his holy anger, yeah, is revealed against ungodliness, is revealed against rebellion. As the Puritan John Owen said, he has a, God has a holy revulsion against sin. God hates sin with a, with a kind of hatred that we can't imitate, really, or even fully understand. He has a strong and settled opposition against everything that rebels against his holy character. So yeah, absolutely. God's anger is aroused by all that violates his holy law, and his wrath must be satisfied. But this doesn't mean that God exists in a constant state of anger. He doesn't. In fact, the opposite is true. He exists in a constant state of joy. I ran into a guy at a conference a couple years ago, uh, and he said he'd read every single one of John Piper's books. And he said, uh, but he picked up this one. He said, this is my, my favorite book by John Piper. I've read it multiple times. It's called The Pleasures of God, Meditations on God's Delight in Being God. And I can tell you, it is a really good book. It's really good. Uh, in it, Piper makes the case that God has always been and will always be fully and completely happy. In fact, he writes this in the book, in the first chapter. From all eternity, God has been supremely happy in the fellowship of the Trinity. From this inexhaustible fountain of self-replenishing joy flows the freedom of God in all his sovereign work. So right now, God is experiencing supreme joy. And of course, the, that joy is most beautifully expressed and directed toward God's Son. Remember when Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3 and comes up out of the water and incredibly this, this loud voice comes down from heaven and what does the voice say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This marks the beginning of the Messianic age. God breaks through the silence and he speaks in a way that people can hear. In a very visual way, he demonstrates his pleasure in his son, that his son is actually the fulfillment of all prophecy. Especially Isaiah 42, which says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. So this Jesus is not only the one that the prophets predicted, the one who would bring about the salvation for his people, he is the Son of God in whom the Father takes great delight. And what's equally amazing, and may shock you to hear, is that God takes the same delight in us, his children, because of Jesus. If you've trusted in Jesus, God delights in you this morning. He takes joy in you. He's happy with you. He's not mad at you. Now imagine how your life might be different if you really believed and lived as though God was a joyful God, that God was actually happy with you in Christ and not mad at you. That He is a joyful God, He is pleased with you, and He wants you to join Him in His celebration of His Son. A celebration that also involves your good and your happiness. 
Now let's look at the second part of this, this single point. But only the down and out will accept the invitation. So verse 1 tells us, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Well, who's the them? Uh, the antecedent to them is, it goes back to the previous chapter, the chief priests and the Pharisees. This is who Jesus is talking to. This is who Jesus continues to talk to, the religious leaders of his day. And to the religious leaders of his day, what does Jesus say? He tells them a story about a king who invited some people to join him in the celebration of his son. But what happened to those people who were invited? They didn't have time for it. They, they weren't interested in the celebration. They blew it off. And so the king says, look, I want you to go out and let people know all that I have prepared. I mean, this is going to be the party to end all parties. This is going to be the greatest celebration the greatest food, the greatest feast, the greatest drink. He said, go and let people know what this is all about. So servants go out and, and they, they let people know this is going to be amazing. You, you don't want to miss this. But again, the invited guests completely ignore the king's servants and return to what they were doing before. And some actually respond even worse, even more poorly. They mock the king's servants and kill the servants who are announcing this good news. So the king does two things in his anger. So the king does get angry. He sends his troops out to kill those who have killed his servants, and he also destroys their city, which is probably, again, Jesus talking to the religious leaders, probably a reference by Jesus to the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Rome that would happen only a few decades later in 70 AD. But the second thing the king does is he sends his servants out to the streets in order to invite anyone, verse 9, as many as you will find. Now, there's a contrast here that we may not immediately pick up on. The first group of invitees are the people of Israel. These are the religious people to whom Jesus is talking. They don't have any interest in the wedding feast, the feast of the king, the king's son. Why? Because they're fine living their lives on their own terms. They don't need an interruption. Their lives are consumed with religious ritual and doing good works and their own activities. They don't have time nor the need to celebrate the king's son. But the second group, these are the outcasts. These are the irreligious. These are, more specifically, these are the Gentiles. Look at verse 9, the phrase main roads in verse 9. Go, therefore, to the main roads is a reference to the roads going out, to the, out of the city into the pagan world where the Gentiles and the Samaritans lived. These, this would have been an in-your-face insult to the religious leaders who knew what Jesus was saying. So these invitations would go to the ethnically diverse Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans, but they would also go to the ethically diverse, good and bad, verse 10. These are the ones who are written off by society. These are the ones who were considered unclean. These were the dogs. That's what the Jews said about the Gentiles. These were the dogs. They had no part in God's plan. These were the irredeemable. And how do they respond? Look at the last part of verse 10. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. See, it's the outcast. It's the hopeless. It's the written off. It's those who know they don't deserve to be in the presence of God. Who actually are eager to accept such a welcome. 
This is a, a parabolic picture, if you will, of the Christian faith. Christianity is for the down and out. Christianity is for those who know they don't belong in God's presence. Christianity is for those who know they have nothing good to offer God by which God would receive them. Christianity is for those who know that everything they, re- they receive, everything they have, is a gift of grace. Nothing earned. All by God's grace. It's a great preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, once said, Grace is favor shown to people who do not deserve any favor at all. We deserve nothing but hell. And then he says, rather pointedly, remember, this is him speaking, not me. If you think you deserve heaven, take it from me. You're not a Christian. But for those who recognize how broken and undeserving and sinful they are, the invitation to feast with the king is a glorious thing. It's an incredible thing. It means acceptance by the king himself. See, being in the presence of the king, again, who symbolizes God in this story, being in the presence of the king for the son's celebration means you are now identified with the son. And when you're identified with the son, you can't be cast out. Where being in God's presence, His dwelling used to be a terrifying thing because of your embrace of the Son, now the presence of God is a place of acceptance and warmth and love and family. It doesn't matter what's going on out in the cruel world. You're safe in the presence of God. Again, this is really at the heart of Christianity. For those in Christ, those who have celebrated the Son by believing in Him, by trusting in Him, His life, His death, His resurrection... Your place in the king's presence is secure because you are now identified by virtue of your faith with the Son. So on those really bad days when every thought of yours is not God-honoring, when rather than being patient and kind and loving and and demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit, you're, you're instead you're just angry with everybody, You're impatient with everybody. On those days when you don't spend time in your Bible reading, you don't spend time in prayer, you don't spend time reflecting on God's goodness. But again, you lash out at everyone around you, even on those days. You're in no danger of being removed from God's presence. To the contrary, you're still being celebrated by God your Father because of the work of Christ. Because you are identified with the Son. As the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, you stand before God as if if you were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Now it doesn't mean when God looks at you, he doesn't see those things that make you individually unique. He doesn't see uh, the things that make you you. He sees all that and he loves all that about you. But when it comes to your sin record, your offenses, all the reasons you shouldn't be welcomed into the presence of God, God instead sees Jesus, His obedience, His righteousness, His sinless record, and His death for you. So your place at the wedding feast is secure. You are being celebrated celebrated by God because of what the Son has done for you. Now let's look at this this last part of this point. While the honorable reject it, that is the invitation, at devastating cost. So the wedding hall is filled. It's all full. Every every chair is taken. There's not an empty seat. The king's son will be celebrated, but the king notices someone 
who's not properly dressed. A man who had no wedding garment on. And the king has this man thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now we read that and we say, wow, I mean, that's, th- those are severe consequences, aren't they, for not having the appropriate dress. When I worked for American Express Corporate Services in the mid-90s, I was 25 and uh, supposedly the youngest sales manager in the nation, although I'm sure they said that to everybody. Um, but I was, I was three months into the, the, my job there, my tenure, and I was required to go to San Antonio for the National Sales Conference. Now, if you've, if you've ever been in sales, you know these things are you know, just out of control, basically three-day-long parties. And so I went there, and, um, and it was American Express, so they had a lot of clout, and they had a lot of money, and we had a, lot of, we had a regular uh, rotation of well-known speakers. The first night was uh, the comedian Dana Carvey. Now, some of, I, guess if you're, I guess you have to be, what, over 40 to know who that is, but long time on Saturday Night Live. And so on the second night was, was Colin Powell, and so, of course, well-known uh, throughout our country. And then we had music by, this won't mean anything to some of you, but it made others, music by the Fine Young Cannibals. Uh, there was a popular band in the uh, early 90s. Well, the, the, the last night was Saturday night, and I had heard this, but I, I didn't really fully process it, but the last night was the big celebration, and that was a black tie affair. And so you had to wear a tuxedo. Well, I mean, you know, women wore you know, these huge extravagant uh, gowns and so on. Well, I mean, I was 25 and had more than a little bit of a rebellious streak in me, and so I've, I've outgrown all that, I assure you, but... Um, but I said, I'm not going to spend $200 on a tuxedo. And so I just wore my Nike polo and my jean shorts. That's what you wore in the mid-90s if you're a man. Or if you still wear jean shorts, it's still cool. Um, but I had my jean shorts on and my Nike polo. And I look around, everybody around me has on, you know, tuxedo. I mean, and so, you know, I've got some looks of real derision, I assure you. And so this one guy came up to me, and I didn't know who it was, but he was apparently way up in the company. He said, hey, are you new here? And I said, yeah, I'm you know, about three, three months. I got out three months ago. And he said, this, we don't do this. You know, I, and, uh, of course, it's embarrassing, right? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm 25, and so you know, I'm kind of uh, doing my own thing. But that's embarrassing when you're kind of uh, you know, dressed down in front of, front of everybody. Now, I was allowed to remain, but it made for a humiliating experience. We read this part of this parable and we say, is that what's going on here? Is this guy just underdressed? Is that really the problem? Well, not really. The fact, the folks who showed up, remember, they go out of the main roads, they invite these Gentiles. They don't know how it works in a celebration of this nature. The Gentiles who accepted the invitation and filled the, the wedding hall, they didn't show up in the most uh, extravagant uh, sartorial choices. They, they, didn't, they weren't uh, dressed so beautifully. They probably had their overalls on. You know? And so these are common people. What, what's the deal here? What's the deal with this guy the king singles out who doesn't have on a wedding garment? Well, it won't surprise you to hear there are dozens of interpretations uh, over the centuries. Um, Augustine said the wedding garment is love, so he was lacking in love. Um, Karl Barth, years later, would say that that the wedding garment is obedience. This guy was lacking in obedience. Uh, Martin Luther said, clearly, it's faith, and pitiable are those who can't see that, you know, kind of as Martin Luther would say it. Calvin said, why are we arguing about this? 
surprising uh, take from John Calvin. He said, why are we arguing about this? It's probably multiple things like a godly life that proceeds from faith. Um, R.C. Sproul said it was the righteousness of Christ. You know, we could, I could probably give you a half dozen others. Well, all those guys are smarter and more spiritual and better studied than I am. But I think the key is really actually embedded in the passage. Notice how the king approaches the man without the wedding garment in verse 12. He approaches him as friend. He calls him friend. He's not angry until when? Till the man remains silent. He was speechless. And I believe the man remains silent because he doesn't feel he owes the king any answer. He doesn't have to answer anyone. He's independent, self-reliant. He's good on his own. He owes no one an explanation for why he is where he is. Now, this mindset, we might call it self-reliance and call it self-righteousness, pride, whatever it is, it infuriates the king, and he has the man seized and thrown into the outer darkness. Uh, the turn of the 20th century German theologian uh, Julius Schneewen says, explains it this way, that which excludes from the kingdom will be the joyless sticking to one's own way of being, even to one's piety. The point being that everyone who considers himself noble, everyone who considers himself honorable, everyone who considers herself an independent person, fine as she is, without God, even those who live upstanding lives, will be regarded by God as one without a wedding garment and cast away from his presence forever. This is a grave and devastating picture of the repentant, of the picture of repentance and faith and the importance thereof. This is referred to as a parable of judgment, and I think that's certainly fair. But we can't miss that it's dripping with grace. God the King invites anyone and everyone to the wedding feast. The outcast, the rejected, the written off, those uh, who have nothing to cling to in terms of deserving. And to those who accept the invitation by repenting and believing His Son, by celebrating His Son, they are welcomed in. They are identified with His Son. They become the King's own sons and daughters. But those who are trusting in their own goodness, those who are living life by their, by their own rules, those who, uh, frankly, consider themselves fine as they are, they look around, they compare downward, they say, I'm a lot better than so-and-so. Those who believe they need not answer the king because they are righteous in themselves are cast away from God's presence forever. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I think there are two questions we ask ourselves. And the one, the first one is, I think we ask ourselves, how do I view God this morning? Do I see God as a joyful, happy, celebratory God? who is inviting everyone who will respond into the worship and celebration of his son? Or do I see God as an angry, spiteful, vengeful, uh, flighty being who's always ready to smack me down when I fail him? And I think the next question we ask is equally important, and that is, are you wearing the wedding garment? In other words, what are you really counting on? What are you really depending on? 
What do you believe it's going to be that gets you in, so to speak, that gains you entrance into God's kingdom? Is it the fact that you've been part of this church for years? Is it the fact that you come from a Christian family? Is it the fact that you give generously and sacrificially of your money? Is it the fact that you've, uh, you were baptized at such and such an age or you walked down an aisle at whatever age? None of those things will be sufficient. If that's what you are clinging to, if that's what you're trusting in, you will be treated and regarded as one who does not have on a wedding garment. But if you're fully trusting in Christ, the perfect, obedient life of God's Son, His death on the cross in your place, His resurrection for your justification, if you're trusting in that, then you can know for sure. Back to the first question. Here's how you view God. As a loving Father who cares deeply about you at this very moment and is, in fact, celebrating you. And it's all because of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us the grace to receive your word this morning. Help us to understand you and to view you as who you have revealed yourself to be. Correct us, convict us of our false impressions of you. Those times when we believe and we consider you as just an angry dictator. A merciless king who's waiting to punish us. Help us to see where, who we are and how you see us in Christ. And Lord, I pray for that person who's here this morning who doesn't know Jesus and is not clothed with the wedding garment, so to speak, who has awaiting him or her eternal separation from you. Father, I pray that today would be the, sal- the day of salvation for some. I pray that you would encourage those who are beaten down I pray that you would reassure us all of your steadfast love. I pray pray that you would comfort those who are anxious. And I pray that you would bring to repentant faith those who are puffed up with self-righteousness or those who are living lives on their own terms. Father, I pray that today would be a day where miracles take place because you show yourself to be powerful and strong and merciful in our presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.